Do you think you have what it takes to dabble in the world of international espionage? Could you handle the stress of life-or-death situations, hostile negotiations, and the pressure to drink multiple shaken, not-stirred martinis on a daily basis? What about the constant threat of surveillance and sabotage by foreign agents, operating so far under the radar that you might never even know they were there? Could you identify when you were under attack, even if you couldn't see it? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who wanted to run my own spying agency when I was little because I'd read Harriet the Spy and thought that spying was all about hiding in dumbwaiters, and honestly, I can't remember what else happens in that book, but I was obsessed with it when I was 10. But I've now seen enough James Bond and Mission Impossible movies to know spying is a lot less dumbwaiters and a lot more death and dying. But also really nice suits, martinis, and a lot of hot women. In truth, I think international relations is probably a lot of boring bureaucracy pushing papers around and posing for photos. Occasionally, though, there are the stories of espionage, poisoned umbrella tips, and secret technology that could have come straight out of a movie. In order to understand the events that take place in today's episode, we need to understand a little bit of history. In the beginning, there was nothing but a vast nothingness. Just kidding. Haha, <laughs> could you imagine? No. So anyway, after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, in which the United States and Russia, via Cuba, had their nuclear missiles pointed at each other and men with skinny ties and Coke bottle glasses warned school children to hide under their desks, relations between the United States and Cuba got, understandably, pretty chilly. The U.S. was like, I'm taking my ball and going home, and pulled all their military and political personnel out of Cuba. But in 1977, President Carter was like, well, actually, and initiated talks with Cuba again when the two countries formed the U.S. Interests Section, USINT, in the Cuban capital of Havana and the Cuban Interests Section in Washington, D.C., and U.S. diplomats moved back into the embassy in Havana. Though, oddly, the whole thing is operated under the protection of the embassy of Switzerland. I guess Switzerland is like a playground monitor, making sure Cuba and the U.S. play nice? About 40 years later, Obama came in and was like, uh, I think I'll go ahead and reopen full diplomacy with uh, Cuba. That was my Obama impression. And he sent U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry in August 2015 for a flag-raising ceremony. At the time, Kerry was the first Secretary of State to visit Cuba in 70 years. Shortly after that, in March of 2016, Obama himself set foot on Cuban soil, becoming the first U.S. president to do so since Calvin Coolidge almost 90 years earlier. But after Obama's visit, Cuban President Fidel Castro, who was nearly 90 years old, wrote an open letter to the Communist Party daily paper Grandma. That's Grandma, not Grandma. Grandma would be a very silly name for a newspaper. In the letter, Castro said, Nobody should be under the illusion that the people of this noble and selfless country will renounce the glory, the rights, or the spiritual wealth they have gained. We do not need the empire to give us anything. 
three weeks after Obama's visit, according to a piece in The New Yorker from 2018, quote, at a Communist Party Congress, Bruno Rodriguez Perilla, the foreign minister, described Obama's visit as an attack on our history, culture and symbols. At a military parade in Havana, soldiers chanted an ominous message. We are going to make war if imperialism comes. Shouting Obama's name, they threatened to give you a cleansing with rebels and mortar and make you a hat out of bullets to the head, end quote. And look, I'm no political scientist or whatever, but didn't Cuba know Obama was coming ahead of time? Like, he didn't just roll up unannounced like a Jehovah's Witness trying to spread the good news. I'm pretty sure there's a whole lot of paperwork and stuff that goes into one dignitary visiting another dignitary. No? This just feels to me like your stingy but very wealthy Aunt Myrtle asked if she could come by for a visit, and you said, sure, come on by. And when she left, you posted all over Facebook about how much you hate her and you don't need her handing your kid a $20 bill every time she sees him, because where was she when you needed 20 bucks? Anyway. Not all of Cuba, apparently, was on the same page, however, and Raul Castro, Fidel's younger brother, who was president of Cuba by this time, was like, I don't know, he doesn't seem so bad. I kind of like him. But then, in 2016, something catastrophic and completely unforeseen happened. Donald Trump was elected, question mark, president of the United States, instead of Hillary Clinton, whom the Cubans had anticipated would continue the diplomatic overtures Obama had started. And then, just 17 days later, Fidel Castro died. Quite the one-two punch of events. Trump, being Trump, reacted pretty much as bombastically as he possibly could have and released a statement that read, Today, the world marks the passing of a brutal dictator who oppressed his own people for nearly six decades. Fidel Castro's legacy is one of firing squads, theft, unimaginable suffering, poverty, and the denial of fundamental human rights. That was my Donald Trump impression. Incidentally, by the way, five states in this country currently allow firing squads for people sentenced to death. Flint, Michigan hasn't had clean water in almost a decade. The rates of people living in poverty are ever increasing, and trans people's fundamental human rights are being stripped away, as well as those of school children, people in grocery stores and churches and dance studios and massage parlors, and people who are just using someone's driveway to turn around or knocking on the wrong door. Not to mention the fact that black and brown people in general are also being denied fundamental human rights every day. But I digress. Two days after issuing this statement, Trump announced to the world, quote, If Cuba is unwilling to make a deal for the Cuban people, the Cuban slash American people, and the U.S. as a whole, I will terminate deal, end quote, via an official press conference. Oh, no, I'm sorry, actually via Twitter. And again, I'm no political scientist, but I don't know what deal Trump was expecting Cuba to make for the American people or the U.S. as a whole, but whatever. He hadn't even been inaugurated yet. Like, slow your roll, buddy. There will be plenty of time to antagonize world leaders after January 20th. Anyway, around Thanksgiving of that year, two American diplomats living in Cuba, whose names have not been divulged, experienced something weird. One of the diplomats told ProPublica in 2018, 
Quote, we were just thrilled to be there. The music, the rum, the cigars, the people. And a very important moment for diplomacy. End quote. Ha ha, ha ha, ha ha ha. Oh, yeah, like the global politics of it all, too, or whatever. Amazing. So one evening after dinner with his family, the diplomat went out into the tropical garden of the villa he was living in. Literally paradise. Minus, perhaps, the already cooling relations between his host country and the one he was there representing. But, you know, minor detail. But no sooner had he stepped outside than he was blasted with what he called, quote, an almost overpowering din, end quote. The sound drove him back inside where he promptly closed all the windows and tried to shut out the noise. He told ProPublica, quote, It was annoying to the point where you had to go in the house and close all the windows and doors and turn up the TV, but I never particularly worried about it. I figured I'm in a strange country and the insects here make loud noises, end quote. According to ProPublica, just a few nights later, the diplomat and his wife were visiting with another embassy official who lived just next door when, while lounging on the patio around dusk, the noise returned. The diplomat wondered if cicadas were responsible for the awful sound, but his colleague thought the sound was too mechanical sounding to be coming from insects. The two men complained to the embassy housing office, but the Cuban maintenance workers they sent to check it out couldn't find any likely suspect for the sound. Despite no obvious source, the sound would happen daily, sometimes for an hour or more at a time. Finally, around three months after it started, the sound began to fade and then finally stopped completely without any trace of where it had come from or where it went. Then, on December 30th, 2016, about a month after the first two diplomats had experienced the weird sound, another embassy official, this one a CIA officer operating undercover as a diplomat, went to the embassy health office where he told a nurse he'd been experiencing, quote, strange sensations of sound and pressure while in his home, followed by painful headaches and dizziness, end quote. Since arriving in Havana, the man, who was apparently a highly trained spy who knew how to recognize signs of counterintelligence operations, quote, had been subjected to constant surveillance, intrusions into his home, and obvious tampering with his belongings, end quote, which unfortunately are all normal things for foreign officials to endure in their host country. Usually, the teams that broke into foreign embassy officials' residents left no trace, but apparently sometimes they would make it blatantly clear they had been there, I guess as, like, a warning? Sounds fun. In her 2018 memoir, Our Woman in Havana, former Ambassador Vicki Huddleston wrote that her house in Cuba was surrounded by two empty buildings with video and audio recording devices pointed at her residence. According to the New Yorker piece, quote, Jason Matthews, who in the late 80s was the CIA station chief in Havana and now writes spy novels, said that during his time there, he woke up some mornings and found cigarette butts in an ashtray in his living room. Sometimes embassy employees came home to find feces left in their toilets. There were perennial rumors among the Americans of family pets being poisoned, end quote. Listen. I once went to change the battery in my toothbrush and thought it was missing and told my husband someone had clearly broken into our apartment and he was like, and all they did was take the battery out of your toothbrush? And I was like, yes. And he said, why? 
and I, near panic, yelled, Ah, just to fuck with me? And I waved the toothbrush at him, and the battery came flying out. He just shook his head and walked away. Lord only knows how I would respond to cigarette butts in my living room first thing in the morning, aside from wondering if I'd somehow time-traveled back to 2010. But anyway, as awful as poison pets and errant poops in the toilet are, the unspoken agreement, it seems, was that physical harm to officials and or their families was a no-no. So when this unnamed official came in with reports of headaches and dizziness after some kind of strange, unidentifiable sound penetrated his apartment, hackles began to get raised. Then again, at the beginning of 2017, that same CIA operative reported another incident of headaches and dizziness following an unexplainable sound in their residence. But two reports do not a pattern make. So no one started to really worry until a few weeks later when two more CIA officers reported experiencing the same thing as the first, with some pretty serious physical side effects. And now, the U.S. Chief of Mission in Havana, Jeff De Laurentiis, and his deputy, Scott Hamilton, not, I'm assuming, the figure skater, called up the muckety-mucks in D.C. and were like, uh, I think you're going to want to hear this. Without any hard evidence, De Laurentiis confronted his Cuban counterpart, Josefina Vidal Ferrero, the director general of the U.S. division at the foreign ministry at the time. According to the New Yorker piece, quote, he described the strange incidents and demanded that the harassment stop because U.S. intelligence agencies had no clear evidence that the Cubans were involved. De Laurentiis was instructed to tell Vidal that her government was culpable for failing to uphold the Vienna Convention requiring host governments to provide for the security of embassy personnel, end quote, which seems strange to me. They had no evidence, but they made accusations nonetheless. But then, on February 21st of 2017, during a visit to the presidential palace, Cuban President Raul Castro asked to speak with De Laurentiis in private. During the conversation, he allegedly said, It's not us. We need more information from your government to help solve it. So who then was responsible? Clearly something was going on, and obviously someone was to blame. Some officials in the Trump White House believed it may have been Cuban hardliners, the same ones who had been so offended by Obama's visit back in 2015. But let's face it, a country that's been cut off from global trade for more than half a century is probably not going around creating cutting-edge sonic weaponry. How do I know this, you may be wondering? Because I, my friend, have seen Iron Man. Maybe if they were lucky, the Cubans might capture an American arms maker and force him to build their own Jericho. But more likely, they were in the pocket of a bald-headed, piano-playing bad guy who could keep them in not-quite-deadly-but-super-fucking-annoying sonic weaponry. Pro tip, if there's a piano in a movie, the bad guy will play it at some point. Apparently, according to The New Yorker, Raul Castro fanned the flames of an it-might-be-someone-else discussion when he allegedly told De Laurentiis that, quote, a third country might be to blame, and he urged the Americans to share any intelligence they found so that he could intervene, end quote. The Cuban government denied Castro said anything like this. But that's a weird conversation to imagine. Hey, you wouldn't by any chance be like, blasting our diplomats with like, some kind of sonic wave that makes them all squirrely, would you? 
Who, me? No, but you know who that does sound like? Someone else. Let me know what you find out. Nice chat. Bye. American officials believe the bald-headed baddie in this scenario was likely either China or Russia. Some people in Trump's cabinet, including Trump's national security advisor at the time, a guy named H.R. McMaster, I swear that is his actual name and not the Mad Magazine version, put their money on Russia, with one administration official saying, Who else has secret weapons programs? Who else has the ability to conduct an operation like this? It fits their pattern, their style. I mean... Aren't there a solid handful of countries that have secret weapons programs? Isn't that, like, a thing? Anyway, after months of sniffing around, not only could the U.S. not find any evidence the Russians played any part in the attacks on Americans on Cuban soil, they couldn't find evidence that anyone was attacked in the first place at all. Meanwhile, the U.S. Embassy's medical unit called up Dr. Michael Hoffer, professor of otolaryngology at the University of Miami, who, according to ProPublica, quote, has worked extensively with military veterans who suffered vestibular trauma from explosions and fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq, end quote. And they were like, uh, can you help? And so he did, running all sorts of machines that go bing, and wouldn't you know it, the CIA operative, who, of course, Dr. Hoffer thought was just a plain old boring diplomat, had sustained some pretty serious damage to his inner ear. And it was at this point that other U.S. Embassy officials finally started coming forward with their own experiences, of which there were quite a few. As the medical arm of the embassy began collecting data, a picture emerged of what would come to be known as Havana Syndrome. According to a Vice magazine piece about this in January of this year, Havana Syndrome goes like this, quote, For some, it began as a loud noise, like the sound of grinding metal. Others heard something that sounded more like a giant swarm of cicadas. Then the intense pressure to their ears and head kicked in, which caused headaches, nausea, and vertigo. If the person experiencing this bizarre affliction tried to move, to get off the X, the noise and pressure would suddenly cease, but the physical symptoms would linger for days, and in some cases, years. End quote. So, yeah, not fun stuff. Six weeks before the embassy in Havana officially opened, an embassy official using the pseudonym Audrey Lee, for super cool spy reasons, I suppose, was pretty much living a tropical paradise dream in Cuba with her husband and two little children, except for the fact that she knew there were counteroperatives who would regularly let themselves into the family's home when they were out. Nope, not me, no thank you, not today, Roberto. Apparently, when they were away on vacation in March of 2017, Lee and her family came home to find an awful stench in their home and discovered their freezer unplugged and everything in it rotted. But that actually wasn't the thing that gave Lee pause. Nope, she just emptied out the freezer, cleaned it and plugged it back in and was like, whatever. And that explains why I would never make it as a spy. It wasn't until 8 p.m. that evening when she was standing at her kitchen sink staring out the window through which she could make out the wooden booth where Cuban police kept watch on the family at all times. 
According to The New Yorker, it was there, standing at her kitchen sink, that Lee experienced a sudden and very overwhelming, quote, burst of pressure in her head and then a stabbing pain worse than any she had ever experienced, end quote. Through her mounting panic, Lee remembered hearing rumors about these kinds of attacks and remembered the directive to move off the X, meaning the spot on which you were standing when the attack began. Through the pain, she managed to make her way up to bed, where even with a blinding headache, she finally managed to go to sleep. The next morning, she still had the headache, and apparently when her son asked her to read the back of his cereal box, she was like, what is words? Which I can seriously relate to. A few minutes ago, I sat staring out the window for a good 15 seconds trying to remember the first name of a good friend I was about to text. Oh my God, strangers, I'm just putting it together. Maybe someone is spying on me. Maybe I am a spy and I'm so deep undercover, I don't even know I am. In the following weeks, Lee was generally discombobulated, bumping into doors, only getting an hour or two of sleep a night, and being pretty forgetful. According to The New Yorker, quote, One afternoon, a colleague stopped by her office to discuss running an errand together. When the colleague returned five minutes later, she said, Are you ready? Lee looked up and said, Ready for what? End quote. In late March of 2017, De Laurentiis held a town hall-style press conference to calm the troops, so to speak. De Laurentiis was like, um, whatever you do, do not panic! And everyone proceeded to panic the fuck out all over the place. According to the ProPublica piece, quote, concerns among the staff and their dependents about their health exploded. Within barely a month, diplomats reported a flurry of new incidents. By the end of April, more than 80 diplomats, family members, and other personnel, a very high proportion for a mission that included about 55 American staff, had asked to be checked out by the Miami medical team, end quote. More than 80 people in a one-month period. In late April, an American government doctor arrived in Havana, and when he got to his hotel room at the Capri, quote, he heard and felt something strange and was stricken with symptoms similar to the previous victims, end quote, according to The New Yorker. And in May, Dr. Hoffer went to Havana to see the patients for himself. Audrey Lee went to see Dr. Hoffer, who ran all his tests and whatnot, and determined that she didn't meet the criteria for Havana syndrome. I guess all the disorientation, confusion, and forgetfulness was just a good old-fashioned case of hysteria. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, she probably just needed to drink more water. Anyway, in July, the victims, the ones who were verified victims, with a blue check mark and everything, but not you, Audrey Lee, were sent to the Center for Brain Injury and Repair at the University of Pennsylvania, run by Dr. Douglas Smith. Dr. Smith later told The New Yorker, there was not one individual on the team who was not convinced that this was a real thing. The next month, August of 2017, a CIA officer flew to Havana and was put up at a hotel just a few hundred yards from the Capri Hotel, where the other visiting official experienced the Havana syndrome symptoms four months earlier. This woman also reported experiencing similar issues in her hotel room. She brought a colleague over to see if they heard it or felt it too, and they didn't. But a few days later, back at CIA HQ in DC, she started experiencing such bad trouble with her eyesight and balance that she couldn't drive. 
This unnamed CIA officer was the highest-ranking CIA official yet to have apparently come down with Havana syndrome. Listen, sure. I don't have all the details. It's classified information. Though I might argue that if Audrey, I don't know how to words anymore, Lee, was deemed free of Havana syndrome, I don't know how this lady with her I can't drive a car anymore was deemed worthy. I swear she's going to hear this episode and DM me that my treatment of her wasn't fair. I joke because I love top-secret U.S. spy-type person. By September of 2017, the people who decide these kinds of things decided to GTF out of Cuba. Officially, 21 Americans in Havana had been targeted, and that was 21 too many Americans for anyone's liking. About half the U.S. personnel were pulled out, leaving only essential people behind, I guess. So that was the end of it. Or was it? Well, sort of. But in February of 2018, Dr. Douglas Smith and his team published their findings on Havana Syndrome in the Journal of the American Medical Association, in which they argued that victims of Havana Syndrome display similar brain damage consistent with mild traumatic brain injuries or persistent symptoms after concussions. A lot of Smith's colleagues begged to differ, however, arguing that Smith didn't know if his patients had sustained brain injury before arriving in Havana. To which Smith replied, To artificially display all of these symptoms, you'd have to actually go and research, practice, be the most consummate actor ever, and convince one expert after another. Listen, I've seen enough acting in my life to know that most regular non-actor people are not the most consummate actors ever. Hell, even some of us professional ones aren't. Now, in the immortal words of those sage poets, MCA, Ad-Rock, and Mike D. You think the story's over, but it's ready to begin. Sometime in late 2017, in Guangzhou, China, more than 9,000 miles from Havana, Cuba, Catherine Werner, a Commerce Department employee at the U.S. Embassy in China, was jolted awake one night in her apartment by a pulsing, humming sound that she said seemed to be coming from a particular direction. This went on for months and was causing her headaches, dizziness, and vomiting. She thought her health issues might be stemming from the terrible air quality. Meanwhile, her parents, all the way back in Pennsylvania, had been noticing her declining health, and they became alarmed at the progression. So Catherine's mother, Laura, decided to get on a plane to China ASAP. Laura went to work immediately, replacing Catherine's air and water filters and having food imported in. But as she was going on about her mothering, she began to notice signs that someone had been in the apartment when they weren't there. Lights turned on, things moved around. Catherine was like, oh yeah, that's just a hazard of the job. So they got a couple dogs for protection. Meanwhile, Catherine's physical symptoms continued to get worse. Her father wrote a letter to Congress imploring them to look into what was happening, in which he wrote, My once beautifully articulate, intelligent, and thoughtful daughter had been reduced to a shell of her former self. Before long, Laura was also hearing the sounds and feeling the pulsing pressure through her body. She, too, developed the physical symptoms. And then the dog started vomiting blood and showing signs of serious confusion. 
After three months of suffering, Laura threw in the towel and went home, begging her daughter to come with her, but Catherine refused to leave her job. In March of 2018, Catherine finally went to the embassy's security office to report suspected harassment. But apparently her health was so bad at that point that people at the embassy were like, girl, you need to see a doctor. State Department doctors ran tests and were like, uh, this looks an awful lot like Havana syndrome. And they sent her to the specialists back in Philly who ran more tests. It took more than a month, but once they got their findings, the U.S. State Department issued a health alert for Guangzhou and evacuated a bunch of U.S. officials. Later in 2018, two officials in London experienced weird sounds in their hotel rooms, followed by pressure and chronic headaches. When they got back to the States, they met with officials who tracked security threats and were told not to tell anyone else about it, not even doctors. So when they did go to White House doctors, they couldn't discuss where the symptoms might have come from, just that they were suffering. The doctors were like, whatever, take some Advil and go to sleep. But then in November of 2018, one of the officials was walking her dog in D.C. and thought she noticed a man following her on the other side of the street. According to a piece in The New Yorker from 2021, quote, as she stood across from him, she felt an intense pain in her head, which made her double over. She also heard a sharp, high-pitched ringing noise, which was completely different from the sound she had heard in London. Adam's friend heard it, too, and felt the pressure in her head, though not as acutely. Adams reported the incident to White House security officials, end quote. So she was finally taken seriously, and White House officials sat up and took notice. Then, that same month, a senior official of the National Security Council was walking to his car from the White House toward the Washington Monument. Only a few hundred yards away, he heard a ringing in his ears, and his body went numb, and he was having trouble controlling his limbs. He tried to get help from a stranger, but couldn't get words out. He told The New Yorker, In a matter of about seven minutes, I went from feeling completely fine to thinking, oh, something's not right, to being very, very worried and actually thinking I was going to die. He managed to get himself a lift to the hospital where he honestly thought he might die from whatever was happening in his body. Doctors ruled out a stroke but couldn't find anything that might be causing his symptoms and said it was probably, quote, massive migraine with aura, end quote. It took two hours for his speech to return, and he left the hospital the next day with a pounding headache and apparently returned to work soon after. By the fall of 2020, in, quote, a country with a large Russian presence, end quote, according to The New Yorker, a U.S. military officer driving through a busy intersection with his two-year-old in the car suddenly felt like his head was going to explode. His toddler started screaming from the back seat. He managed to get them out of the intersection where the pain in his head stopped and his son calmed down. And then it happened to another military official completely unconnected to the first. Geolocating was able to determine that both men had been near GRU, aka Russian Chief Intelligence Vehicles, when the apparent attacks happened. And when the State Department and CIA expressed reluctance to take the attacks seriously, Chris Miller, the acting Secretary of Defense, said, We've talked enough about this. Let's get after it. 
I mean, this is bullshit. Something's going on. I thought we were well beyond the phase where we thought it was an unexplained mania or any shit like that. Gotta love his enthusiasm. But then, as the Wall Street Journal reported in March of this year, reports of cases of Havana syndrome have continued to come in from all over the world in the last few years, including from, quote, Russia, Poland, Georgia, Serbia, Vietnam, India, Cambodia, France, Switzerland, and Taiwan, end quote. And the State Department and other top agencies realized they couldn't just brush it off anymore. Efforts were doubled to figure out what was going on why and by whom. One theory was that a sonic weapon that used microwave currents was causing the sound and accompanying pain. A report issued in December 2020 by a Stanford University professor of medicine and microbiology named David Relman and his committee concluded, quote, that the symptoms of many of the victims were consistent with exposure to pulsed microwave radiation, end quote. Another theory was electromagnetic pulses, which, according to The New Yorker, quote, could have caused cavitation or bubbling in the tiny fluid-filled passages of the inner ear or in arterial blood. As the bubbles formed and in some cases exploded, they could have damaged the organs that regulate balance and orientation. If they burst inside the cranial cavity, the victim could have suffered mini strokes, causing brain damage similar to the effects of decompression sickness. But to know for sure, one doctor said, we'd have to take the brains out, and that's not possible, end quote. And then, of course, there's the possibility of our old friend, mass hysteria, or mass psychogenic illness. In their book, Havana Syndrome, Mass Psychogenic Illness, and the Real Story Behind the Embassy Mystery and Hysteria, Robert Bartholomew and Robert Baylow argue that the story of Havana Syndrome carries all the classic hallmark traits of an episode of mass hysteria. As summed up by Boston-based writer and researcher Natalie Shore, quote, They spread at a stressful time with a semi-insular community of victims who knew each other and were primed by their peers and higher-ups to vigilantly screen for any indications that they or their family had suffered blows from heretofore undiscovered weapons. Indeed, the first reported cases of what would soon become known as Havana Syndrome surfaced just after Trump's surprise election threw years of diplomatic strategy in Cuba into disarray. Employees who had just moved their entire families to Cuba suddenly faced disruptive uncertainty. Standards and relationships set by the terms of the detente threatened to be upended. Some may be experiencing functional symptoms related to stress, anxiety, or depression. Others may simply be wrongly ascribing unrelated symptoms to weapons or becoming more attuned to and magnifying symptoms they would have shrugged off before being told their colleagues and their colleagues' spouses and children are being hunted by high-tech snipers. End quote. Victims of Havana Syndrome beg to differ, however. And then, in January 2022, the CIA released findings that stated it was highly unlikely that Havana Syndrome was the work of a foreign adversary. Despite that, though, according to a piece in The New York Times, quote, the U.S. government has begun paying compensation to CIA officers, State Department diplomats, and other officials who have been diagnosed with head injuries following reported incidents, end quote. So that's interesting, 
No one attacked you on our watch, but here's some compensation anyway. A March 2023 report from the Defense Department stated that some form of investigation is still ongoing, but where it stands, we just don't know. What's behind these incidents might be a mystery, but the symptoms these people experienced were very real. For them, something completely unseen, nearly undetectable, and totally unexplainable struck them down and changed their lives forever. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, when an unidentified man shows up dead on a beach in Australia just after World War II, he sparks a half-century-long mystery filled with intrigue and conspiracy. The Somerton Man. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineered and mixed by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia and Luther Creek. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story for something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, head over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please do help us out by giving us a five-star rating and glowing review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you don't like the show, feel free to give a one-star and a scathing review. The name of the podcast is Fireside Chat with Dennis Prager. 